I sense amongst all your pains, some merely physical, the desire to express your feeling about good, evil, fear, foul in some way, to rationalize it, and prevent it just festering. In my case, it generated Morgoth and the history of the gnomes. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote this in a letter during the Second World War to his son Christopher, a pilot in the Royal Air Force. Morgoth and the history of the gnomes, bits of mythology later published in the Silmarillion, would serve as the bedrock from which the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings would grow, and they were conceived in the trenches of World War I. The Elder Tolkien had fought in World War I and participated in the Battle of the Somme, one of the most horrific episodes in human history wherein one million men were wounded or killed in northern France. Tolkien's three closest friends were also in the British Army. The four had been friends since high school when they formed a society called the Tea Club and Barovian Society, a sort of precursor to the Inklings, where the young men discussed cultural criticism and shared artistic ambitions. Only two survived. Tolkien remarked in the preface to the second edition of Lord of the Rings that, quote, By 1918, all but one of my close friends were dead. In many ways, some more overt than others, these traumatic experiences would come to haunt Tolkien's life and work. Hey everybody, welcome to Deconstruction Junction, a podcast that explores works of popular culture using philosophy. My name is Brad Dunn. For the inaugural episode, we'll be looking at The Lord of the Rings and what it tells us about the relationship between trauma and art by drawing on What is Philosophy by Gilles Deleuze and Felix Gattari. I hope you like it. Before we get started here, I'm going to preface by saying that I'll be doing a deep dive into the themes and plot of Lord of the Rings, so if you're one of the five people who've never seen the movies or read the books, then I suggest you go check them out, because there'll be plenty of spoilers ahead. I find it strange that Tolkien isn't considered a post-war writer in the same way other veterans like Ernest Hemingway or Kurt Vonnegut are. Most of the time, the parallels between Tolkien's experiences in the war and his work are treated as an afterthought. Critics mostly focus on the battles and devastation of war that is depicted in his writing. However, I would argue that Tolkien captured a psychological truth of post-war trauma, just like Hemingway and Vonnegut did. Of course, it's understandable that Tolkien is treated as such, considering he himself did much to deflect such readings. Consider this passage. The only green was the scum of livid weed on the dark, greasy surfaces of the sullen waters. Dead grasses and rotting reeds loomed up in the mists like ragged shadows of long-forgotten summers. Hurrying forward, Sam tripped, catching his foot in some old root or tussock. He fell and came heavily on his hands, which sank deep into sticky ooze. For a moment, the water below him looked like a window glazed with grimy glass through which he was peering. Wrenching his hand out of the bog, he sprang back with a cry. There are dead things, dead faces in the water, he said with horror. Tolkien claimed that this description of the famous dead marshes from the two towers owes maybe a little to what he saw in France during the Battle of the Somme, but more so to, quote, William Morris and his Huns and Romans, as in the House of the Wolfings or the Roots of the Mountains, end quote. There is almost something to be said of Tolkien's vision of the fellowship and his experience amongst his fellow soldiers. 
Tolkien once wrote that the experience had taught him a deep sympathy and feeling for the Tommy, especially the plain soldier from the agricultural counties. Prior to the war, Tolkien was a bit of a self-admitted snob, living in the ivory tower of academia at Oxford. But Kitchener's army subverted the British class divides by throwing together blokes of various walks of life. You can't help but see the groundwork here for the bromance between Legolas and Gimli. Nonetheless, Tolkien consistently rejected allegorical interpretations of his work. Quote, I object to the contemporary trend in criticism with his excessive interest in the details of the lives of authors and artists. They only distract attention from an author's work and end in becoming the main interest. But only one's guardian angel, or indeed God himself, could unravel the real relationship between personal facts and an author's works. Not the author himself, though he knew more than any investigator, and certainly not so-called psychologists. End quote. I'm inclined to agree with Tolkien insofar that mining a writer's personal life is really illuminating with regards to their work. Sometimes you might come across a biographical nugget that served as a detail in one of their stories, but then it's like, so what? We all know artists draw on their experiences for material, big deal. Occasionally, however, there are moments where events in an artist's life provide an important insight into a concept or theme they're exploring within their work. And that's why I'm pushing the issue here, despite what I'm sure would be Tolkien's displeasure. Before I go any further, I'm going to do a quick recap of Lord of the Rings, just in case some of you are a little rusty on the plot. The story begins in the Shire, a small village within a larger world called Middle-earth. Young Frodo Baggins inherits a magical ring from his uncle Bilbo, who's more uh, of a father figure. Unbeknownst to the hobbits, however, the ring actually belongs to Sauron, an evil sorcerer who would use the ring in his quest to dominate Middle-earth. Gandalf the wizard tells Frodo that he is in danger and must escape to Rivendell, where he will be safe from Sauron's minions. At Rivendell, a fellowship is formed to accompany Frodo into Mordor, where he will cast the ring into the fires of Mount Doom, which is the only way the ring can be destroyed. Soon, however, the fellowship fragments and Frodo must continue the journey with only Sam Gamgee. They soon run into Gollum, the previous owner of the ring, before losing it to Bilbo. Uh, Gollum is a husk of his former self driven mad by the ring. Together, the three of them manage to sneak into Mordor and ultimately destroy the ring and Sauron with it. Uh, I've skipped a lot of details, but that just about sums it up, or at least what's relevant to what I am going to be discussing here. I'm sure some of the Tolkien nerds amongst you will take issue with my drive-by summary, but that's all you can do. Uh, what I want to focus on in this podcast is the end of the story. Which ending? You may say, there are a couple. The Return of the King's conclusion seems to go on forever. At least the movie cut out the stuff about Saruman taking over the Shire, Sharky. No, I want, I want to focus on is the detail of Frodo writing his story. In an intriguing moment of metafiction, Tolkien inserts his own text into the narrative. For those of you unfamiliar with the term, metafiction refers to literature that self-consciously reminds the reader that this is a constructed fiction. Uh, Vladimir Nabokov's Pale Fire is a strong example of this. Uh, metafiction became prominent in the post-modernist era of the 1950s and onward, but it has roots in older texts like the Canterbury Tales and Don Quixote. Uh, the Hobbits uh, write a book called The Red Book of Westmarch, which Tolkien uses as a conceit to explain the source of his own mythopedia, 
Basically, Bilbo writes The Hobbit and Frodo writes The Lord of the Rings with some help from uh, Sam. This is made even more explicit in uh, Jackson's adaptation. Interestingly, these are the three ring bearers. Moreover, the size of their contributions are commensurate with the trauma they endured thanks to the ring. Bilbo took it from Gollum and had it for most of his life, but it was Frodo who had to destroy and truly reckon with the scope of its corruptive influence. And finally, Sam carried it briefly when Frodo was incapacitated uh, due to Shalab's poison. The ring uh, is a complex symbol, rich in metaphor. It exploits the evil within the individual's heart, but also has a will of its own. Tolkien seems to be saying that evil is both an independent force, but also something that exists within all of us. The ring is also a force of atrophy. It empowers the bearer while weakening them at the same time. In the film version of The Fellowship, in Galadriel's opening monologue, she explains that Sauron, quote, poured his cruelty, his malice, and his will to dominate all life into the ring. We could spend an entire podcast episode unpacking the ring's metaphorical and thematic significance, but for now I'm going to stick a pin in it and just say that the evil is or sorry, the ring is evil incarnate, and when someone wears it, they experience that Nietzschean moment of gazing into the abyss, while the abyss also gazes into them. Consider this quote from Frodo when he is near Mount Doom. He tells Sam, quote, I can't recall the taste of food, nor the sound of water, nor the touch of grass. I'm naked in the dark. There's nothing, no veil between me and the wheel of fire. I can see him with my waking eyes. Him being Sauron. This is a haunting passage, one of my favorite bits of writing from Tolkien. I remember rereading Lord of the Rings one summer when I was going through a bout of severe depression, and this line really struck me. It felt like it had come from a writer with real experience of profound melancholy. Frodo returns to the Shire equal parts hero and a shell-shocked veteran. He asks, quote, how do you pick up the threads of an old life? How do you go on when in your heart you begin to understand there is no going back? There are some things that time cannot mend, some hurts that go too deep that have taken hold. So here's my question. Why are Sam, Frodo, and Bilbo the ones to tell the story? Why the hobbits, the ring bearers? Certainly Gandalf would seem like the character most likely to write something like the Red Book of Westmarch, or maybe even Aragorn. Earlier I said it was intriguing that Tolkien deployed the Red Book of Westmarch as a conceit because metafiction is strikingly a strikingly modernist literary device for someone like Tolkien, who was very anti-modern. He viewed the era of James Joyce and T.S. Eliot as, quote, an age when almost all octorial manhandling of English is permitted, especially if disruptive in the name of art or personal expression. You can sort of feel the derision of personal expression there. Tolkien took more influence from, say, Beowulf as opposed to what any of his contemporaries were doing. Usually, with metafiction, the author is trying to say something about the medium in which they're working. So when a novelist includes a character who is also a novelist, particularly one who is working on the actual novel you are reading, they're definitely making some kind of point about novel writing. Consequently, by making the ring bearers essentially novelists, 
Tolkien is thus revealing something about the relationship between trauma and artistic creation. To explore this idea further, I'm going to draw on a text called What is Philosophy? by Gilles Deleuze and Félix Gattari. If you aren't familiar with these guys, they were French philosophers who were active mostly during the latter half of the 20th century, that post-World War II, post-structuralist, post-modernist era, post-post-post-post-post. Gattari had a background in psychiatry and psychoanalytics, whereas Deleuze was more of a traditional philosopher, although I'm not really sure traditional is the right word to describe Deleuze. Uh, they worked together on a couple texts, the most well-known being a two-volume book called Capitalism and Schizophrenia. In addition to their collaborations, they both published independently, but frankly, Deleuze is sort of like the Paul Simon to Gattari's Art Garfunkel, so you'll often hear people, including myself, talk about uh, just Deleuze as opposed to the two together. Uh, what is philosophy sounds like it would be an introductory level book for philosophy, but I wouldn't recommend it as such. Uh, it's a good intro to Deleuze and Gattari, and I think you'd need a bit more basic stuff under your belt before tackling these guys. Uh, there's a lot of post-structuralist type writing in it that tends to alienate the uninitiated. As you can imagine, they're often used as poster boys for the anti-postmodernism screeds. I myself used to think like that way back when I was an undergrad, but if you give this sort of stuff a chance and come at it with an open mind, I promise it can be very uh, enriching. Uh, the goal of what is philosophy is to try and differentiate philosophy from science and art, but in a way that doesn't prioritize anyone over the other. I won't get too bogged down with the nitty-gritty of the thesis, but essentially Deleuze and Gattari argue that each discipline is an attempt to confront chaos. Uh, to Deleuze and Gattari, the world is fundamentally chaotic, and humans reconcile with this reality through philosophy, science, and art, and each of these three have their own discrete way of uh, mediating chaos to help make sense of it. With regards to art, Deleuze and Gattari define artistic work as a, quote, block of sensations, that is to say, a compound of percepts and affects, end quote. There's a couple terms to unpack here. First of all, uh, block, B-L-O-C, is a combination of parties or groups formed to promote a particular purpose. This idea of a multiplicity of uh, a grouping of individuals or components comes up a lot in Deleuze's work. As for percepts and affects, Deleuze and Gattari are referring to perceptions and feelings that have become independent of those who experience them. So basically, an artist has a thought or an emotion and uses it as a basis for a work of art. And once they have created that art, those thoughts and emotions are now independent of that artist. This calls to mind the analogy so many artists use between their works to their children. An interviewer might ask uh, something like, which of your books is your favorite? And the author responds, oh, I couldn't possibly choose. My books are my babies. Which makes sense when you think about it. You created your child and they carry traces of you within them, but they are their own person. And at some point they have to go out into the world and make it on their own. Same with a piece of art. You work hard on it, but eventually you have to submit it to the public. Accordingly, Deleuze and Gattari assert that, quote, the only law of creation is that the compound must stand up on its own. The artist's greatest difficulty is to make it stand up on its own. An artist can't be a helicopter parent of the work. Uh, 
A painter can't sit around the exhibit having to explain their work to each visitor that comes by. In postmodernism, this is often referred to as the death of the author, a term popularized by French literary critic Roland Barthes, which basically says that the author doesn't have a godlike privilege with regard to the work. Um, so, you know, for example, when J.K. Rowling says that Dumbledore is gay, she's full of crap because there's nothing in the Harry Potter books about his homosexuality. It's really just virtue signaling, trying to score points, basically. Uh, I think Tolkien would agree with Deleuze and Barth in this respect. His hostility towards biographically based criticism certainly seems sympathetic. Therefore, according to Deleuze and Gattari, Quote, the aim of art is to wrest the percept from perceptions of objects and the states of a perceiving subject, to wrest the affect from affectations as the transition from one state to another, to extract a block of sensations, a pure being of sensations. And in each case, style is needed. The writer's syntax, the musician's modes and rhythms, the painter's lines and colors, to raise lived perceptions to the percept and lived affections to the affect. It is always a question of freeing what life wherever it is imprisoned or of tempting it into an uncertain combat. This process of freeing life, of pulling affects and percepts from lived experiences seems very intense as Deleuze and Gattari describe it. They assert that artists, quote, have seen something in life that is too much for anyone, too much for themselves, and that has put on them the quiet mask of death. But this something is also the source or breath that supports them through the illness of their lives, end quote. This quote has always struck a chord with me, and I think it's because it gives credence to the suffering artist stereotype, but in a way that is actually empowering instead of trite. Certainly, many of you have heard of the arduous journey many artists go through during their creative process. Ernest Hemingway said that, quote, there is nothing to writing. All you do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed. Some of you may be rolling your eyes right now because this is a bunch of cliches, but stereotypes sometimes persist because there's at least some sliver of truth to hang them on. Personally speaking, uh, I'm a novelist, and I've dealt with clinical depression and anxiety since I was 18. Many of my creative friends also deal with similar issues. The connection between mental illness and creativity is hard to deny, and Deleuze and Gattari are giving it legitimacy. It seems like they are saying that artists experience some kind of trauma, or at least are keenly sensitive to an aspect of life which becomes overwhelming and consequently requires an outlet and that they channel this excess of life into their work, be it a painting, a novel, a film, a sculpture, a piece of music, whatever. With all that being said, I don't want to go so far as to say that art is a form of therapy. I think there is a legitimate method of treatment called art therapy, but I would reject the idea that a work of art in the most rigorous sense of the term isn't therapy in and of itself. If that were the case, then Hemingway probably wouldn't have killed himself. Um, Philip Connors summed this up nicely in a piece he wrote for The New Yorker entitled On Writing About Suicide and Not Finding Catharsis. He says, quote, The kind of writing that speaks most deeply to me requires a kind of ruthlessness and control that are antithetical to catharsis for the creator, if not the reader. 
To be asked if my writing is a form of catharsis annoys me because it annexes the territory of literature under the flag of therapy. For, quote, survivors of suicide as renowned, closure is little more than a neat idea, end quote. To use, to use Deleuze and Gattari's terminology, in order for the work of art to stand on its own, it would have to go beyond the therapeutic needs of the creator. Indeed, even though Frodo and Bilbo write their great novel, it doesn't alleviate the ring's trauma. They find solace only when they venture to the Grey Isles, leaving Middle-earth. So when Tolkien wrote that letter to his son Christopher during World War II about the desire to express his feelings about good and evil to keep them from festering, he was advocating for a creative outlet for trauma. Tolkien claimed that the Dead Marshes owed only a little to Normandy, but perhaps the Dead Marshes and Lord of the Rings as a whole would never have existed without Normandy. Does that mean the artist must suffer in order to create great art? I mean, not necessarily. I don't think you need to have an especially traumatic life in order to write good books. Life kicks us all in the guts at some point or another, unfortunately some more than others. Rather, I think artists are just a little more sensitive to those kicks. They possess that paradoxical state where they are, on the one hand, soft enough to feel those blows, but strong enough to share their experience. That concludes the first episode of Deconstruction Junction. I hope you enjoyed it. My name is Brad Dunn. Thanks for listening.